I don't want to interfere, but I think it would be... I think we have to work. I can't hear you. I think we have to work on the music a little bit more. Fine. But I don't want to make trouble, so I don't really want to do this in front of them. But I think... Where do you want to do it? I think we have to sit down and make a schedule that includes some, some music time. Because I think Jean and I have to work. Why are you whispering? I'm right here, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want me to talk louder? Because I think that... Now it's too loud. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowley. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are into the first episode of year two for the podcast, episode number 27, and that is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has for us. Now it's too loud. (laughs) I have chosen Waiting for Guffman from 1996, directed by Christopher Guest, written by Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy, and starring Christopher Guest again, Fred Willard, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, as we mentioned, Parker Posey, and Bob Balaban, among many other wonderful actors. Waiting for Guffman follows the director and local amateur cast as they put together their big musical production of Red, White, and Blaine, which will celebrate the town's sesquicentennial. And guess what? A Broadway producer's coming to town to see the show. But we don't start on the Great White Way. We start on the mean streets of Blaine, Missouri, where a planning committee is in the beginning stages of putting together the sesquicentennial celebration. Definitely. We have the city council members looking at a beautiful model of the town that's very uh, well put together to discuss the logistics of this huge event for Blaine, the 150th celebration of the founding of the town. And we start to meet our cast of sort of background characters, these city council members. We've got the mayor. We've got the brilliant and underutilized constantly Larry Miller. One of the funniest people I've ever seen, bar none. Stand up, screen, stage. And according to Christopher Guest, nobody can wear a short sleeve shirt like Larry (laughs) Miller until we see Don Larkin, who plays the town's historian. My two favorite cast members are actually two people that you didn't mention. Larry Miller is one, and we'll get to another one later on. Well, don't get too excited, because I've got a couple of people to rattle off. I also want to mention... Gwen Fabenblount, and she, she is also joined by Steve Stark. He's my personal favorite, and he's played by Michael Hitchcock, who Eugene Levy and Christopher Guest also point out has the capacity to seem like a normal person when you first see him and talk to him and then just go completely crazy, and he's wonderful. And we've also got another city council member who's really insistent that this year... We need to get some snipers on these roofs because we got egged a whole lot last year. So we need to cut down on that hooliganism. Does Blaine not have open carry? 
Definitely not. And we do know that it was filmed in Lockhart, Texas, so I guess if they did it now, yeah, that would be a whole other issue. That's true, I guess. I thought that town square looked extremely familiar now that you say that. We've been there, haven't we? Yes, we visited there a lot, actually, or I have. You and I have been at least once, but it is one of my favorite places in the world because it is a pilgrimage for serious barbecue lovers. Lockhart has legendary Texas barbecue. Fantastic stories, in fact. Squabbling between families that goes on over decades. It didn't occur to me till you just said that, that I have seen that very courthouse and town square and been in some of those businesses and other buildings. Well, we'll save that for your self-produced documentary on the Lockhart barbecue struggles. Let me tell you about one thing, though. Okay. <laughs> for the barbecue for enthusiasts. It. In the crowd, that is the longest continuously burning barbecue pit in Texas that's in Lockhart. When it changed hands, when the whole family squabble thing went down, they took a shovel full of coals from the original pit, walked it down the street to the new place, and started the new pit with those coals. So their fire has been burning, I want to say, almost a century. Wow. Okay. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't feature in this film. That's a damn shame. But it is, because it's set in Missouri. And it looks like anywhere small-town America to me. Any of those places that you go to around the country that still have those Go to Lockhart and eat barbecue. Okay. (laughs) That macaroni and cheese is pretty good. Mm. Sorry. That's okay. Anyway, we go through the setup of of the celebration, Mm -hmm. how it's going to play out. And we jump back and forth with some different talking heads, and we learn about the founding of Blaine. This uh, wagon train was headed out to California, and Blaine Fabin said, oh, I smell it. I smell that salt air. Oh, I thought you were going to say barbecue. No. (laughs) Okay. You've got to relax at the barbecue for the next hour or so. And then we'll go get barbecue. Okay. Okay. And he says, I smell this all there. Can't you smell it? And they think, oh, great. And they have a big party. And they realize, oh, no, we're in Missouri. But, hey, that that suits us just fine. So they settle the town there. And then we meet our shining star, Mr. Corky St. Clair. And Corky is a visionary. Wouldn't you agree? Without a doubt. He is. He has a singular vision. He has come to Blaine from New York, and he has started to put together these local amateur productions. And we see a lot of the publicity from them. They were obviously huge hits if the building wasn't burning down because he had someone light newspapers in the vents during his Backdraft the Musical. He really wants the audience to feel what's happening in these shows that he puts on. He is a visionary. It should be pointed out, though, the central point of the whole thing is that his vision is of his own greatness. Totally justified as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Now, to step back for a second, I first saw the character Corky St. Clair as played by and created by Christopher Guest on Saturday Night Live in one of their video shorts of the synchronized swimming. With he and Martin Short? Yes, and Harry Shearer. And... I love the character then and was so delighted to see that character come back. Now, that is one of the frequent criticisms that I see of this film, actually, that the material is much more appropriate for a sketch. It does not lend itself to 
a sustained story arc. How do you feel about that? Well, I want to talk about that a little bit more in depth later, once we get through more of our characters that make up our cast. But what I do want to say right now is, in reading about this, I read some article in some paper that came out at the time that basically said, the film would be a lot better with a script. (laughs) Which to me, you know, misses the whole point. But no, this is one of the funniest films I've ever seen in my life. You know what? I'm just going to jump ahead and say what I want to say as my central thesis. I don't understand why every single person in the universe doesn't love this movie. I don't get it. And so what I was going to say for later is what falls on your list sort of of those things of I love it. Why doesn't everybody else see Uh it as their favorite? You know, if you think about the Christopher Guest small canon of work, I think most people would put This is Spinal Tap at the very, very top. Sure. And then if you look at the Metacritic scores and Rotten Tomatoes, This is Spinal Tap and then Best in Show do better than this film. And to me, that is insane. And... Okay, I'm going to say the third part of my thesis. Is that because this appeals to me as a theater person? Is it because you find that thing that speaks so much to the world that you inhabited that it means more than it does to a person who's never been through a local production of something? Could be. There are two very specific reasons why I think it is held up for criticism, one of which I think is legitimate, one of which I completely disagree with. But... Like you say, we'll get to those things as we go, I guess. Yeah, I didn't want to wildly jump ahead. I wanted to keep going and get okay, into the Okay, we'll keep us going. Stuff. Okay. What do we have coming up? So we've just met Corky. Mm-hmm. And now we meet Ron and Sheila Albertson, the <laughs> Lunts of Blaine. And they are played by Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara. They own the Magic Carpet Travel Agency. They're the local uh, business people who have realized that they have this gift as well for theatrics so they really embrace this life and they've they've caught the acting bug obviously mm-hmm. we then move on to libby may brown who is parker posey she's working at the dq very texas she's our ingenue mm-hmm. does she play a little bit more texas than missouri oh, do you think out a doubt yeah. are you kidding me yeah. that girl is east texas all the way I still think it fits because when we learn later on about her dad being in jail and moving around a little bit, it seems reasonable she could have come from Texas to another small backwater sort of place. Could be. We learn a little bit more about another of Blaine's claims to fame. They had... Nice assonance. Thank you. They had the first alien landing, not Roswell. They beat them by a year. Mm Mm-hmm. And Blaine people actually went on board the ship, and they had a potluck dinner, so it was very nice. (laughs) I will say the one thing that sticks out in this to me as completely incongruous and jarring and takes me out of the movie is David Cross's tiny segment as the ufologist. I totally agree with you. I'm going to ask you what bothers you the most. I'm going to tell you first what bothers me the most because I'm talking. And that is, he says, the five letters in Blaine make up this other word. There are six letters in Blaine, number one. And he still could have had it make that other uh, little, what is it called, an anagram. He still could have had that work. It has always (laughs) bothered me that he says five and not six. Anyway. That is not what bothers me about it. It's just a different type of humor as soon as i see 
David Cross, I think Mr. Show. I think something that's not as gentle, I guess, as Christopher Guest usually is, even though this is, again, criticized as being somewhat cruel sometimes. It just is a different type of humor that is taking place in that 45-second segment, and it completely takes me out of the film. Interesting. I don't disagree with you. I think they could have taken that scene out and oh, we wouldn't have noticed it. And actually, in listening to the commentary, I learned a lot of interesting facts, which I'll try to relate as we go. And one of them was that they actually had a lot more of the UFO-related mm-hmm. stuff, a lot more people talking about that, and they took that out. What I do completely relate to, though, and what puts it squarely in its time and place and is a perfect piece of characterization it's Corky's Judy Tenuta t-shirt. For sure. Brilliance. <laughs> Brilliance. <laughs> so the last wonderful member of our amateur theatrical cast is Dr. Alan Pearl, played by the wonderful Eugene Levy. And he talks about his background, his earned background in theater, going all the way back to his grandfather, who was in Yiddish theater, with uh, Dybbuk Schmivik the wildly sardonically irreverent <laughs> review show. And that's where Bobby Medikishka came from, if you didn't know that already. So now we've got the overview of all the folks that we'll be coming back to. And we jump to the auditions. Before we get to the auditions, yes. you say now that we've established our cast of characters, you mentioned that Parker Posey is the ingenue of the cast. With the theater background and having dealt with these people for years the way you did, are there archetypes that each one of these people correlate to that you see? If Parker Posey is the ingenue, for instance. I think that they are recognizable people. Now, I'll say first, I saw this during a break from my work at Idaho Shakespeare Festival. We went during the day while rehearsals were going on. And we were the loudest, most obnoxious people in the theater, which was very wait small, minute, by the way. Theater people? Yeah, theater people. We were <laughs> guffawing and poking each other and looking at each other and laughing with our mouths open. We were those kinds of folks. Knowingly. You were laughing oh, knowingly. But honestly, I loved it so much and still do. It has not diminished for me at all. So I'm going to defend myself a little bit. But yeah, we were loud as hell in that movie. If you were in my Alamo... I would get you bounced out of that joint. You probably would. You probably would. So I saw it when I was working in theater. And then I continued to work in theater after it as well. And my work afterwards is where I started to see more of these kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Because that Idaho Shakespeare was just a summer experience. I was the house manager. So I I wasn't as involved. I went to Baltimore after that to the wonderful Everyman Theater, which is now really well known it was starting to get well known when i was there and they celebrated last year i believe was their 25th year Hmm. so they moved into a beautiful new space so they're doing really really well when i started it was small houses and i think i made seven hundred dollars a month working and uh, worked seven days a week as we all did I would go in the back and there would be little um, mouse babies in trash cans and other assorted craziness. Sneaking in to see the show? No. (laughs) Keeping warm. Okay. Which was more than I could do because I had to wear those gloves with the fingers cut off to type because it was so cold. But, But 
during my time there, we actually transitioned to sellouts and huge reviews and winning awards. So it was a pretty big deal. Mm. But anyway, to not go on and on, it was at Everyman that I got to be part of the audition process. And the very specific animal that is the open audition process. <laughs> so I'm going to come back again to your question, but I want to say first, when you see the people auditioning for this musical, Red, White, and Blaine, mm-hmm. the guy who specifically does the Raging Bull scene, You Fuck My Wife, mm-hmm. I vividly remember, <laughs> and everyone who was there will remember, <laughs> an at least 70-year-old woman coming in with a little pink dress on and a pink phone. And her monologue was from, I don't even know what, I think she wrote it, maybe. Oh, great. And it, she proceeded to be a phone sex operator. <laughs> and so you'll also see people on TV, on reality shows, when you have to cover your face with their headshot or something like that, because you don't want them to see you laughing and you cannot stop. That's what happened. It was really weird. So I've seen those people at auditions okay. for sure but to I, I i know i'm wildly going that's okay off book here if you sure, will that's fine how else would i have gotten to hear about the 70 year old phone sex I, operator oh God, audition? so weird so going back to recognizing these kinds of actors as well so there's always going to be the ingenue there's always going to be the johnny savage character the sort of bad boy mm-hmm. kind of a guy there are always going to be those old hands the people who have been doing it forever. They're always couples. <laughs> yeah, that can get really weird, too. They're constantly changing partners as well sometimes. But, yeah, there are always couples. And I remember, too, especially in those earlier days, we would have people who had been around that scene for a long time and maybe weren't quite as talented as other people that you would see come later when you had more opportunities to reach out to more folks in a bigger audience. Mm -hmm. When your name is more well-known, you can attract some other people sometimes. And I don't mean to denigrate any of those folks. But they're in everything. They've seen everything. They're lovely, wonderful people. Those are my favorite people to work with. You can always rely on them. They have no ego, Mm -hmm. generally. Their family members are all somehow involved. The wife will come in and bring you cookies and somebody else is out fundraising for you and the kids are driving around props or whatever. They're great, great, great people. So I don't know that that totally answers your question, but... Sort of. The only thing I'm now wondering about is every time... Is that where that 70-year-old lady is? I think she's about 90 now, I guess. Is there always the greenhorn, the fresh-faced young newcomer, a la Eugene Levy? The wild card. Mm -hmm. The person you work with every day who you didn't know was a star. (laughs) Uh, Probably not so much. Probably not so much. But, you know, somebody can carry a tune, do a little swing, put a little swing in a step. You do have to have spear carriers. Mm -hmm. I mean, those roles exist for a reason, too. Well, getting back to the Guffman audition process. I think it's really fun to note here that the actors... They created those audition pieces themselves, Hmm. and that was the first time that everybody was seeing them, (laughs) the first time that they performed them. So within the whole construct of making this movie, 
Christopher Guest and Eugene Levy had created an outline. They had spent the most time actually on the Blaine backstory mm-hmm. to get, really get that in place, to set the foundation for this town and for what the celebration was supposed to be like. So each performer was more ultimately responsible for the development of their own character. Definitely. They did give them the musical pieces as suggestions. They had to use a lot of public domain stuff because they couldn't afford anything else. And then they gave this to them, and then the actors put those actual auditions together. And at the audition is where we see Bob Balaban, who is playing Lloyd, the high school music teacher. And he is clearly not happy with having Corky on his turf. That's probably my favorite subplot of the whole thing. Definitely. Lloyd's simmering resentment that goes throughout the entire story. (laughs) And Lloyd doesn't particularly look impressed by any of the actors auditioning. Corky thinks they're wonderful. So Corky's got the cast to set in his mind. And he starts on the process of the creation, the design work, the costuming, the dance, all those very important elements to make this production ready to go to Broadway if they can do it. It's in this part during the auditions and before the rehearsal process begins that is one of the two things that are most often criticized. The one I agree with. The line, it's funny, when he mentions going to buy his wife Bonnie a pantsuit. Sure. This whole charade of him being gay but no one in the town knowing that, how much the character edges into stereotype, does not hold up well for me. That is the one thing, especially... Later, when he throws the fit and says he's going to go home and bite his pillow, those jokes fall completely flat. Now, I assume they did even then, probably not as much. That element of the story just completely does not work. I could see maybe that working in the 40s? But are you telling me that the populace was so ignorant of gay culture that no one recognized what this character is supposed to be, especially a character that is played pretty over the top? Pretty prissy, pretty stereotypical. I am telling you that I believe it 100%, and here's why. Wait, wait, you believe which part? That no one knew? I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Okay. I believe that he would be 100% accepted for who he is in that world without the notion of gay coming into place, because how else can you explain why middle-aged white ladies like drag shows so much and La Cage aux Folles and everything like that where they find that stuff to be delicious and hilarious and will go see all of that. And I think that he is essentially a lifeline for these characters who have no option for that sort of flamboyant creativity It's like they're calling out to him. So, yes, I think the whole world of theater and music and dance, that that is completely accepted. If he came in and said, I'm a construction worker, it would be a little bit different. So to them, it plays as more cosmopolitan than anything else. Yes, he's so exotic and worldly. He's been around so much. He's He's done it. He's been to New York. Hmm. I don't know if I buy it. (laughs) Why don't you ask my mom what she's watching right now? Okay, that's a good point. Actually, that helps me put it in perspective. Good. Hmm. My mom would be a different story. Okay. 
and the people in the town that I grew up in, it seems like would be a different story. I come from a town that's probably pretty similar. In fact, not even big enough to have a Dairy Queen. And our plays were all school plays. There weren't community plays. We had to drive 20 miles away to even participate in or see something like that. So I don't quite know if it rings as true to me. It doesn't seem like it would be what you're describing. I think I agree with you that it's certainly blown up to the to comedy, mm-hmm. to satire, to something even possibly beyond that. But I think that at its heart, I have seen people react that way to those sorts of experiences. That element of something theatrical and flamboyant being acceptable in some places and not in others. And people can accept that duality somehow. Mm-hmm. So middle America is hungry for flamboyant glamour and those people are those people that's why i said i think he's a lifeline for them they don't have any other outlet for something like that and and then the people just coming to the show they can enjoy it on that level they don't have to interact with quirky necessarily but the people who want something else who feel that calling somehow he is answering that for them you explain it that way. It works for me on that level. Okay. But as an outside observer, just yeah. watching the film, there are still those things that just are not funny. Gotcha. They're just lazy gay jokes. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, completely reasonable to say that as well. And I think what I'm talking about is, or what I'm trying to express poorly is about the character in the setting in a mm-hmm. broader sense. But yeah, that's, that's a great point. Some of those jokes are just not going to land and seem unpleasant. One of the pitfalls. And below them. Yeah, exactly. That's that's probably more what I'm thinking. Because you, you mentioned quite rightly, I think, that it's more of a gentle humor. Because I look at this, and I do really think that they love these characters. And Eugene Levy, I think, makes a great point in the commentary that they had to feel something for them. They had to be rooting for them mm-hmm. on the level of wanting this show to go well for them. They had to be feeling that, so there's got to be some sort of love for these characters. But you can argue within that, are they making fun of them or having fun with them or expressing them? Is it more neutral or not? That's part two of my conversation, which is a much bigger conversation, which we'll get to later. Okay. Where are we in the film now? We are now at the first rehearsal. Okay. And we are encouraged to let go of our assumptions. You, you think you have these expectations. You've got to just let it go. You've got to hear the music and feel the music. Try these exercises. Try these dances. And everyone is so energized by this first rehearsal. And that's, that's why I'm thinking again about him being their lifeline. Mm-hmm. They're so excited. They found this thing that they love and that they feel that they're great at. And they have a way to actually do it. And we start to get into the music work as well and I do want to mention here that all of the music was written by Christopher Guest with his fellow This Is Spinal Tap band members Harry Shearer and Michael McKeon and if you watch the end credits you'll see how each of them worked on different pieces so we start to see them working on this music and we see that Lloyd isn't necessarily the rock that we might think he is he has that suggestion of okay you sing Nothing Ever Happens in Blay, and then you come in with mmm. So not maybe the greatest instincts, but a hard worker. Everyone's getting to know each other a little bit better during this as well. And this is when Corky announces that he had sent out a number of letters to producers. 
and he got a response. Mr. Mort Guffman from Broadway is coming to the show. And this changes everything. This brings that aspirational dream that everyone has to a fever pitch level. Ron and Sheila are talking about going to Hollywood. Libby wants to go to New York. Where's Dr. Pearl gonna go? Everybody is so excited. But that manifests itself for every single one of them in wanting to leave Blaine. Yes, this is their ticket, which is a very dangerous thing to be putting all of your hopes into this one project. Can you relate to that at all? Is that relatable for you? Because I've seen people go through that. No. And again, all of this feeds into my... Nothing's ever relatable that much to you as it is to others, possibly. Well, to my a second major point. And oh, I guess okay. it's a good... I'm sorry, I talked over you. No, that's okay. I guess it's as good a place as any to start to get into it in that they are all delusional. <laughs> yeah. You are looking at me so seriously when you say that right now it's you feel it you feel it acutely so no i don't relate the creative things i do the band we know very well at what level we operate and we have very modest goals which we meet which allow us to keep creating music with the podcast we clearly are not mark Marin's or someone operating on that level we get our few dearly beloved listeners that check in with us from show to show, but I know very well exactly what level we're operating on, and I don't pretend like it's something else. And I don't think that one day the right person is going to hear this show and we are going to hit the big time. It's not something I want, for one thing, and it's never something I think about. It's not an aspiration. The thing that lets these people in for satire is they don't want to be great. They want to be famous. And that is a huge distinction. Which I think is much more realized in For Your Consideration mm -hmm. that came out a few years later. So no, I don't, I've, I've never had that in me that I'm going to go take on the big city and live my dream. I've gone to the places I've wanted to be and I've fostered the kind of creative life I've wanted to have with people I love at the level I know that it works and sustains itself. And I'm perfectly satisfied with that. With anything beyond that, there are also commensurate troubles that I want nothing to do with. And they don't think those things through. They're just thinking about that rocket straight to the top, mm -hmm. really, and how great and wonderful it would be. And you see another of those thwarted dreams that pressed down hope and joy especially in steve who's the pharmacist slash town councilman who so desperately wants to be in the show <laughs> but corky said if you can't come to the audition i'm sorry that show business i'm not going to do a special one for you but he is just he can't contain himself but we talk about what the stakes are for them and Corky, when he goes to the town council to ask for an exorbitant amount of money to really make the show what he believes it to be. Right. Well, we should also clearly delineate what they think the stakes are and what the stakes actually are. That's true. But there is a wholesale misunderstanding in their minds of what those two things are. I do think, though, Corky says very clearly, and it's within comedy and it's in within pathos, but he says, this is my life we're talking about. Now, what he thinks his life is, 
Yes. Some delusion happening, for sure. My creative endeavors, that's what my life is too, but I understand that that means selling a few thousand copies of a record. And that's not because you at one point thought you were going to be oh, no. Johnny Rotten and then... You know, you got beaten down, beaten down, as Corky has, quite <laughs> rightly, just to then settle for something else. That's not where you're coming from. No. Just self-awareness and understanding right. <laughs> how the thing works and knowing that 98% of people who engage in music or literature or theater as a pastime or a career, that's where you end up. Well, speaking solely from the theater standpoint, it's very much a, you know, you're a working actor in mm -hmm. the theater. I saw much less of people with sort of impossible to my mind dreams and more realistic things and doing well and being at a good show. Yeah. Being recognized for doing something great, working with other people who elevate you. I saw that all the time. I didn't see as much of the that there's something in me though I honestly I will go back to the whole open audition process that's that's more often where you see people who really need to reevaluate where they're going or have some I always wanted to just really think there's got to be someone who loves you at home who will take you aside and gently but firmly explain to you this is not going to happen but they're not going to listen anyway I guess because that's yeah. also a component of what makes you a superstar. If someone had told Lin-Manuel Miranda, for instance, eh, this whole hip-hop history thing, you should really reevaluate that, he would never have listened to that, and rightly should not have. So you can't tell someone who is reaching for the stars that and expect them to then say, you know what, you're right. Because as you often see, Sometimes all it takes is dumb luck, being in the right place at the right time, having the right person see your thing, because I know for a fact you've seen, I've seen, on a regional or local level, there are people who are just as talented as megastars. Definitely. And going back again to theater, I've seen the greatest actors ever. Mm -hmm. I've seen them right in front of me, and a hundred other people saw them at the same time, and that was about it. And the comedies... Tragedy plus time. I don't know if you ever heard that before, but yeah. Well, anyway, Corky gets brought back down to earth. Uh, they, he's asked, they do not approve his request for one hundred thousand. One hundred thousand dollars because the whole town's budget is fifteen thousand, and that includes the pool. <laughs> so he is very upset. He barricades himself in his house. He's quit the show. So it's up to Lloyd now to announce to everyone who does not want to listen to him that he will then be taking over the show. They're going to go through the music. They're going to learn their lines. Everything's going to be great. No way. The cast runs to Corky to try to bolster his spirits again and get him back to the show. But it really takes the mayor and the town council to come to him to say, you are the only one who can make this show happen. Yes, it takes Which the is also true. biggest ego stroke from the highest seat of authority in Blaine to satisfy him enough to talk him into coming back. Now, I'm going to go back to our question earlier. Do I completely believe that these town council people would be having this conversation with him. I believe that they believe he can pull this off. He and only he. And they, they want to invest that responsibility in him. 
not denigrating him for his lifestyle or anything like that. They see that he is that spark that can make this happen. Now, is that, again, a factor of their being provincial and never having seen an actual show and what a successful and creative and artistic musical review looks like? They saw Backdraft. <laughs> you could feel the flames. It's true. So... He's the one who can do it. Well, and there's nobody else around. But he's the one who can do it. Is it a case maybe of no one else wants to do it? I guess Lloyd wants to do it. Lloyd wants to do it. But not in the way that everyone else wants it done. No. Not with nearly the Lloyd panache. Can't, Lloyd's not going to be able to make everybody feel the red, white, and blaine. Anybody can see that. Lloyd could never choreograph the dance with the backwards pants. No. So they give him the ego stroke, which I firmly believe. I firmly believe in the reality of that. And he's back at rehearsals. Let's just forget all about it. Let's go forward. And now we are at the day of the show. And Johnny Savage, that irresponsible jerk, backs out at the last minute. And there's only one person who can do it, and that's Corky. He's got to jump in and fill in. And someone says, I can't remember who, but somebody says, if there's an empty space, just say a line. Which is my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> so we start to see the audience begin to take their place. The orchestra is starting with the overture. And we see that special reserve spot for Mr. Guffman, but he's not here yet. Never having been involved with a production on that level, do you get a sense of anticipation that I even get when you hear orchestra tuning up, crowd milling, is it the same for you? Because no matter what it is, no matter what venue, what setting, if I'm either in the theater or seeing a representation of it like this, I start to get a little excited about the potential of what's happening. It's the same feeling I get when the lights go down in the theater before the movie starts. I always anticipate the potential of something great. Most definitely. And I was the person backstage on the headset making sure everybody was in places. The stage manager is always the one who comes back to say places, but making sure that they're all there and everything's props are where they're supposed to be and all that good stuff. So waiting right there, when I start to lower my voice because I'm on headset, all of those sorts of things, which I do want to point out the one thing that took me out of this, the stage manager in this has a wireless headset, which is impossible for a production of that level. Thank you. Because it's never too, too expensive. Too expensive. That's crazy. I had 100-foot-long cords hanging out of my jeans for years, but anyway. I don't think wireless technology costs as okay, much as you no, think it costs. No, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but anyway, I yes. could rig you something. And from I could get the stuff at Radio Shack and make you one of those for probably $25. We have a porch with opposite doors and a back door. We could rig up some wings. Are we going to put on a show this weekend? <laughs> I've been writing something yeah? in my spare time. What's it called? Its working title is A History of the United States in 400 Parts. What do you think? Shorten it? Maybe a little bit? It's about seven hours long right now. Now, if I do, I do all the parts. If I do all the math, 400 parts, seven hours. That's yeah. 420 minutes. That is a minute per part. Yeah. Starting in, it's, is it pre-Columbian? It's all in rhyming couplets. <laughs> um, no, it actually starts when the year I was born, 1975. 
<laughs> okay. Perfect. So, there's a, I mean, there's a lot to cover. Anyway, okay, I will show it to you later. Okay. Lights come up. I'm not giving you one hundred thousand dollars. Oh Jesus! How about fifteen? Okay. How about five bucks? How about rehearsal food? <laughs> a grilled cheese and a Charleston chew. Okay, thank you. The lights, lights come, come up. up. The show begins, and I will say, in the first rough cut of this, number one, Christopher Guest had completely taken out every quirky St. Clair scene. He cut himself out of the movie. In the first cut. And so the producer had to come and say, let's rethink this. In every single scene? <laughs> Not just the yeah, show scenes? he had completely taken himself out. He had found a way somehow to totally take himself out of the movie. He did not appear in the film. Hmm. But anyway, sorry, trivia bit. The music for the film, the musical itself, the show, took at least 40 minutes. So they really had to cut everything down. But here's where we get to really my favorite. The show is the best part. It's the meat. We see the history of Blaine. I think the songs are great. I've had the stool song in my head for <laughs> 20 years now. So we, we get through that first half, which is going really well. And as one of the set changes takes place, we see Mr. Guffman arrive. So that's pretty important. And as they go to intermission... Everyone is aware now that he's here, so they're very, very excited. And Fred is Willard, that true to life? When something like that happens, when someone is expected at the production, does the cast know when they arrive? Yeah, I, it's always different. It's always on an actor by actor basis. I had one actor in particular who would always ask ahead of time if there was press in the house, and he wasn't. It wouldn't change his performance. He was a great actor, a great guy to work with. Love him. I think he was just a little bit more aware. He didn't want to be surprised afterwards. Mm -hmm. And maybe it just kept him on his toes Could a little be. bit more possibly. But yeah, that's I did have one guy who would always ask that. But my favorite line during the intermission process is Fred Willard says, should we start over? <laughs> Do the whole show again? <laughs> so we're back into the second half of the show. And... I think all the jokes are landing in the show. Everyone's enjoying the music. The orchestra sounds great, by the way. And so the show comes to its frenzied finale. They do the big major ending with the balloons coming down from the ceiling and the cast going through the audience and everybody's got their finger guns and all that great stuff. Everybody's happy. The audience is clapping along. And so the end. On its scale, a huge success. Definitely. Enjoyed by all. Right. As important to the townspeople almost as the people who put on the show. Or at least that's the impression I get. Is that that's, the impression you get? Yes. And when they are interviewing different people out in the high school lobby or wherever they are, everybody's so excited. They think it represented the town well and they love their favorite actors and Steve loves Corky and it's all great. Now, can you recall having gone to productions that you left feeling that way about, that you were energized by or that you felt changed something in you or represented something that you had never been able to put a finger on before? Because I know theater has been a huge part of your life for decades. Yes. The very first show I ever got to see in the seventh grade, we went to see Taming of the Shrew at the Mill Mountain Playhouse, which is still there in Roanoke, Virginia. And that changed my life. I have no problem saying that. 
it was so exciting. I had never been close to anything like that. First live thing I ever got to see, first acting I ever got to see live. And the costumes were early Hollywood. And I was already familiar with that from all the movies my mom got me to watch. Mm -hmm. And so it felt so special. I was already interested in Shakespeare. It kind of hit all of my buttons. And I can't quite explain the feeling about, I want to do that somehow. I want to see that. I want to do it. I want to see it. I want to be in it. That's what I was going to ask, because contrary to most people who have a similar experience, you didn't want to perform necessarily. No. No, I always knew back when I was elf number four in the fifth grade and shaping up Santa, our (laughs) musical that year, that I was not an actor. I had huge anxiety. I still have stress dreams involving I don't know my lines, things like that. I know I'm hammy and terrible and don't have great timing. So, yeah, in that respect, I was not delusional. Okay. I just wanted to make that somehow. So I don't know where that part came from exactly. But it did. It it happened at that show. And there were many shows since then that got me that excited. But I actually remember as well one of the last things that I've seen. And this was after I had moved away from Baltimore. I wasn't doing theater anymore. I came back to visit and I got to see Proof at Everyman. And they did a wonderful production of it. And I was weeping at the end and I went backstage to see my friends and It was that thing of missing something so much Mm -hmm. and feeling that huge hole inside of me. And just from the standpoint of it was a great play, it was a great production. And then that other feeling. But no uh, Noises Off. (laughs) Noises Off was a show I did in college. I was the ASM for that and I had to lead the rotation of the stage. Oh, and I had to stand in for one of the actors just during a rehearsal and having one of the actors pull my shirt from behind because I was facing the wrong way and I had to go run through another door I knew and I was sweating. I knew acting, not for me, (laughs) not for me. I think people who have heard you do our opening scenes would completely agree with (laughs) what I have just said. Would say otherwise. No. You are a complete natural. But I'd love production. I love everything about it. I love watching actors. I love seeing something come from nothing or innovative interpretations of work that's already been around for a long time. I I love everything about it. But let's transition from my life back to the show in the film. Okay. So it's the end and Corky goes out to get Mr. Guffman and bring him backstage to meet the cast. This is my second favorite performer in the whole thing that you didn't mention up front. I love Paul Benedict. I will also say Paul Dooley as well, who I didn't know was an old Second City hand Mm -hmm. as well. So he's great in it, too. Paul Benedict comes back and delivers my favorite performance of the whole thing. He is so grounded in this. He's so great. The contrast he provides underlines that thing I was talking about, about how delusional the rest of them are, because he gives them his most sincere well wishes on par exactly with what is deserved. Yes. He gives the response that the show deserves. He enjoyed it at the level that it was, and he is equally as happy to just take this balloon home to his new grandson. And getting the response they deserve leaves them completely crestfallen. Because I think this is the best sort of movie trick. 
The stage manager then comes in and says, oh, this telegram arrived earlier, but there was no time. And it said, for Mr. Guffman, snowstorm in New York, all flights canceled. So he, Paul Benedict, was not Mr. Guffman. He was just a local man who was in town and came to see the show. And that's when we fade to black. And we come back up and it's three months later and we're finding out where everybody is now. Some of the funniest bits in the movie are right here. Because right here, it's just joke after joke after joke. And pretty much all of them nail it. Yeah. We've got Dr. Pearl. He's in Miami Beach. (laughs) He has to entertain. So you have to go where the audience is, Mm -hmm. which is a senior center of some kind. Tellingly, they have all, each one of them, retrofit their dreams to now match their current circumstances. Right. And Ron and Sheila are in Hollywood. As extras. Don't have a car yet. (laughs) You don't want to contribute to the pollution. Uh, Yes, they're extras. We've got Livy back in the DQ, but in Alabama, so uh, sort of a lateral move, I guess. And talking about what sort of new DQ recipe she can come up with, which anyone who knows me knows I'm all for that. And Corky made it back to New York. And he had actually looked up Mr. Guffman, who was very kind to him and is giving him the opportunity to audition for his upcoming production of My Fair Lady. He's <laughs> working on dropping his H's. Oh, are you? Yeah, my favorite. And he's opened up his wonderful memorabilia shop. I would shop there all the time. Definitely. The My Dinner with Andre action figures would be the oh. first thing I buy. Probably second would be the Andrew McCarthy head, who, whom I saw at the Kennedy Center, and he was great, by the way. How does he act oh my gosh, with no so lips? Good. How do you deliver lines? I was lines really far away. When you so, have no lips. I guess that's why. I couldn't, there was no jumbotron inside the theater, so. When you have to make labial sounds, bees, peas, it requires lips. Your mom has to make bees and peas. <laughs> So everyone has landed somewhere, you say, commensurate to their actual talent level. They still have the dreams, though. They do. They are just biding time at this level. They have not realized, this is where I belong. With the exception of maybe Dr. Pearl. So I had my weird 80-point thesis earlier. So where do we fall on those kinds of questions? Does the film make fun of or have affection for the characters? Do we feel that they actually like them, that they're rooting for them? Are the jokes landing? Why is it not more popular? All those things that I've touched upon. And I do want to say a couple of things I want to mention before we finish. Christopher Guest did say specifically that most everyone in the cast had either done some sort of small town or small theater. So everyone was very comfortable in that kind of world. Do you think that it shows, or do you think that it's operating on snarky satire? I think their affection for it shows. That's the second point that I kept referring to, the target of satire. There's this whole thing in comedy, a huge division, the faction that thinks you only punch up, and the faction that thinks it's okay to take aim at targets that are beneath you. I am in the second camp. I'm in the George Carlin camp in that you can make a joke about anything if you do it the right way. 
there's nothing that's off limits in comedy to me. There's no rule that can't be broken. <laughs> yes, the greatest art was always made by following the rules. Ridiculous. You can punch down, you can punch sideways, you can punch up. As long as you are skilled at what you're doing, there is no target that is off limits. And I'm maybe giving myself too much credit. I'm thinking back to that person that was in the theater on break from rehearsals and laughing my ass off. And I never thought that I was better than them. I thought these performers are hitting these jokes really, really well. And I really relate to this. So you never felt bad about laughing at any of the jokes in this. Nothing was ever so much at someone's expense that it made you uncomfortable. No, I think I know the difference. And if I go to something like For Your Consideration, that very much feels like that to me. Even though they're much more egotistical or rude or unpleasant or people that you don't want to root for, these people I root for more. And mm -hmm. they're, they're, even if we are having a wink at their expense, they're such gentle, good-hearted people. There's no one that I want to see fail. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, to take the long way around to come to that. Well, I think the thing, like I said earlier... The thing that sets them up to be lampooned is the fact that they want to be famous, not mm -hmm. good at what they're doing. That's the aspiration that makes it okay, because I feel like anyone at any level, whether you're an urbane sophisticate or whether you are a complete provincial, anyone who so completely overestimates their ability is fair game. You know what, though? I think at this level for them... Those two things are synonymous, that if you're good enough, you're just going to be famous as a matter of course. That if this show is good enough and the right person sees it, oh, of course it's going to do well. That there's just no question of that. I don't think that they put the fame first. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm imbuing no. it with something that's not No, there. I see what you're saying, but that is still, whether they're aiming for glory or a great performance it is still an overestimation of their abilities. It's true. I also will say, I think that their idea of what this fame is, is the very generic kind. And it's the very Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland kind. It's <laughs> it's not the, I'm going to go to this specific theater and do this and work with these people because they're the absolute best. And I want to work with the greatest directors because that's how I'll be the most well-known and have the biggest blockbusters. It's we're going to Hollywood as a concept. I'm going to New York. Mm -hmm. They don't know what those specifics really would mean for them, which well, I think comes from, I guess, more of that sort of provincial. Some could argue that that particular lack of understanding indicates that they are backwards and not lovable. True, true. The last thing I wanted to mention is that Christopher Guest said that this was directly inspired by a junior high production of Annie Get Your Gun. And he was so inspired by everyone's level of earnestness and how well they wanted to do. And I think that's what I, again, respond to. Mm. I will take earnestness over anything always. On that, we agree. So maybe they don't do their homework totally, but they're still there and they still show up and they still do the process and they give it their all. Well, speaking of giving your all, why don't you give me all of your recommendation? Oh, good one. <laughs> Smooth. Did you like that? I did. I always, I guess, have to tell a story before I give my recommendation. Okay. But the way that I got to this recommendation is that it's the thread that I started earlier as well. Why isn't this movie everyone's favorite? I just don't get it. 
The film that is my recommendation is The Imposters from 1998. Mm. I love this film. I can act out parts of it okay. for you. I don't get why it's not more well-known and why it's not with Waiting for Guffman, everyone's favorite. Oh, it makes... I feel like I'm trying to explain something that I can't explain. It's bursting inside of me and my heart's pounding because I'm so tense about why... Waiting for Guffman didn't make a billion dollars. Do you have anything like that that you can relate to? Any of your favorites? Everything that's my favorite is that way. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why Fugazi hasn't sold 50 million records versus Taylor Swift. I don't know why John Cassavetes still is obscure, relatively, and everyone knows Michael Bay's name. Everything I love yeah. is on that level. There's nothing that I love that's not on that level. Okay. So you can relate to what I I'm wholeheartedly for relate once. to, to for, what not you're for talking once, about. <laughs> yes. It bugs me. It bothers me. It bothers me that this is a three out of four stars for Roger Ebert. I don't get it. But if the things that you love this much were as well loved by everyone else and replaced some universal thing. Say, Waiting for Guffman was revered the way Star Wars is. Would you still feel the same way about it? Yeah, because then I could be the recording secretary of my local chapter of Waiting for a Guffman fan club. <laughs> okay. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, probably. It wouldn't lose something because everybody no. loved it? No, because if they loved it, I would assume it's because they get it and I want it to be seen and appreciated. Mm. I think that's where it comes from. But anywho, back to my recommendation of The Imposters from 1998. Directed by Stanley Tucci, written by Stanley Tucci. And it's a story of Stanley Tucci and Oliver Platt who play brothers. They are two out-of-work actors who accidentally stow away on a ship in order to hide from a drunken, belligerent actor who had sworn to kill them because they belittled his talents. I really like that one, too. To me, that one feels like a complete throwback, though, is why I like it. It feels it like is. Preston Sturgis mixed with the Marx Brothers. There's a whole lot of classic Hollywood that I love that's in that. Plus, it's got your buddy Billy Connolly in it, mm, too. I love Billy Connolly so much. He's one of the greatest. I think The Imposters is beyond hilarious, and I hope everybody checks it out. How about your recommendation? My recommendation is more in line with the small town put on a show aspect of it. And I'm going to recommend Drop Dead Gorgeous from 1999. I like that one a whole lot. I saw these, it feels like in the same time period. Yeah, you know? all of this stuff sort of feels in that late 90s wheelhouse. Very similar and maybe even all running together for me. Anyway, Drop Dead Gorgeous, directed by Michael Patrick Jan, starring Kirstie Alley, Ellen Barkin, Kirsten Dunst, Allison Janney, and Denise Richards. And it's the story of a small-town beauty pageant, again, set in Middle America, set in Mount Rose, Minnesota, in which the contestants mysteriously begin getting bumped off one after another. Very black comedy. Maybe not the greatest. Not as funny as The Imposters. I'll give you this round. And I really laugh a lot at that. It does feel a little bit more mean-spirited to me, but maybe Maybe that's maybe why not. I like it. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's definitely darker 
than Waiting for Guffman. It's got a very black undercurrent to it. The comedy is a little venomous. And there's nothing wrong with that, like you said. I really enjoy it. It's a solid six and a half, seven out of ten, probably, for me. Not a world beater, but something at least relatable to this film. Kind of the flip side, a darker cousin to Waiting for Guffman. And I recommend that people see it. So two great recommendations, again, for the kickoff of year two of the podcast. We have got The Imposters and Drop Dead Gorgeous. And that brings us to the end of episode 27. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search for our names on either one of those. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I'd like to take a second and say thanks to everyone who shared links to the show or gave us feedback since the last episode. The guys at FUDS on Film, Micah Matson. Thanks to Doug McCambridge at the podcast Good Times Great Movies for wishing us well on our anniversary. Brian Sauer, thanks for sharing the show. Matteo Boscarol. Chad Engelbert gave us great feedback. And I would like to say a special happy birthday to our friends Aaron West and Mark Herney over at Criterion Close-Up, who celebrate almost the exact same launch day that we did. We launched our shows within 48 hours of each other, and so I sort of consider them our brother podcast in our podcast graduating class, as it were, and they just passed their year mark this week as well. So congratulations to those guys. And also thanks again to Brian and Sela for being on the last episode to talk about their new venture, Pathway Comics. They're out at the Colleen Geek Fest as we speak, talking to people, getting the new issue of the Dimensionals out in front of folks, and it seems to be going really well. So thanks to everybody who checked them out via the podcast also. We are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to subscribe to the show or leave us a review or rating, we would certainly appreciate it. We are also on Google Play for you Android users. And finally, you can find all of our shows, including supplemental material, at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>